G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. This recent data is actually the worst sentiment they have seen from surveyors in the in the in the history. And you know, we can see that seven out of ten Americans have a negative view on the U.S. economy. Two thirds say inflation is outpacing their wages. Uh, only twenty four percent of people are saying that now is a good time to invest in stocks. Fifty uh, percent say that their own financial situation is worse than it was a year ago. So. Overall, this sentiment is that individual investors are really taking a, a wait and see approach uh, for further investments of all kinds. And that includes stock market investing and real estate investing because you know they think that there's more pain to be felt and, and thus they want to be defensive with their money in, in staying on the sidelines. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. So uh, first and foremost, a big hello and welcome back to all our returning uh, investors. It's great to see you all and some very familiar names here in the participation window here in the waitlist. So hello to everyone. For those people who are new to uh, RSN, it's a, a big a big hello and a warm welcome from us. And hopefully you'll get a, a good insight into how we think about um, investing in today's current economic climate 
But but this is uh, just a bit of a, a brief background on on this. This is uh, the state of the market. We um, we're talking. Uh, this is a follow up from uh, a, a webinar series that we did about tw- six months ago, when uh, back in November, late of 2022. And this is uh, really the sort of second part of that as we come through sort of really unprecedented times. But before I do get into that, I want to welcome next to me, as always, Ben Gray, my my trusty uh, partner and COO here at, at, at RSN. So I'm going to hand it over to Ben for a quick introduction. Oh, great. Thanks, Reid. Well, you know, thanks for joining, guys. I've got a couple of things to get us started. I want to remind everyone that we are genuinely live. So you might hear a dog bark or a baby cry. I've got a little cold, so you might hear me cough or sneeze. Uh, you might hear us stumble on our words, but this is the way we like it. You know, if you're giving up your time to meet with us, we don't want to press play on a video. We want to be here. We want to be real. And we want to give you the opportunity to ask us questions at the end that are completely unscripted. As I mentioned earlier, we've had extremely positive reception to our last state of the market webinar in November last year. And we've decided to do another one. And we think we're going to continue doing these every sort of six months as we you know, go through some extremely unprecedented times right now. And the purpose of these webinars is really for us as a company to share our thoughts on the current state of the market, along with how we are responding to many of the challenges that we're seeing in the last you know, six to 12 to 18 months, but also to sort of look ahead and see what any opportunities there might be um, coming down the pike, which we think uh, we're going to be really you know, poised to, to pounce on. After a brief introduction, we're going to go and jump straight into the same agenda as we did in the last webinar. We're going to start with a bit of a brief recap from our last webinar, and then we're going to move into where we've come from over the past six months, where we are right now, and where we're going. So with that being said, I'll also just add, we're going to have a live investor Q&A at the end of this. So with that being said, uh, let's get into it. And before we, you know, if you do have any questions throughout this webinar, as Ben mentioned earlier, we are coming to you live. So um, please put them in the chat. Or you can email it to me at read at rsnpropertygroup.com. And that will be where we can answer any of your questions. So we're going to spend probably the first first 30 to 40 minutes, 30 to 35 minutes doing a presentation. And then we're going to hand it over to live questions for the last uh, 15, 20 minutes. So with that being said, I'm going to give a quick brief overview of who we are as a company. And again, for those people who have invested with us in the in the past, a big hello and welcome back, and thank you for joining and supporting us. Um, for those people who are new to RSN, um, just a brief background: we, you know, we've been in operation since 2014, and over that time, uh, we've had a portfolio in excess of over 700 million dollars uh, to date. Uh, we're a bit a bit shy of 4,000 units in the portfolio at, at any one time, and that's about 23 syndications, I think, uh, in that time. And we, you know, really focused on you know, looking to grow investors' capital by buying, uh, you know, strong performing assets in growing MSAs throughout the United States. And we really target um, project level IRRs between 16 and 17%, netting a solid return to investors of between, um, you know, 1.7 to doubling their money over a three to seven year hold. Um, We're really into renovating and rebranding and repositioning assets. And we really think that our our thesis in in where we are at RSN is, is buying you know, affordable, quote unquote, affordable housing um, and, and looking at that sort of class B space, B plus space, uh, and really catering to those folks who who in, uh, earn between forty to $80,000 a year in emerging markets across the United States. We're currently in Central Texas, San Antonio, Austin, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, some parts of Georgia, and we've just broken into uh, Greenville, South Carolina as well, and looking to continue to expand. So with that being said, we're going to quickly touch on uh, you know our team here. We do, we're going to talk a little bit about our team, but it's just Ben and I on the call tonight. It's uh, two 
Oster, the two founding partners here at RSM. We also have Austin DeGue on the call and Josh Oten. Uh, they're only part of our, our wider team, and I'm sure most of you have dealt with, with our team and, and, and who we've got uh, involved here at RSM. But with that being said, we're going to get into it. And um, Ben, I'm going to let you do uh, a little bit of a recap of what we've done since our previous uh, webinar. Fantastic. Thanks, Reid. Well, look, in our last webinar, we covered a lot of ground. And one of the key points that we made is that it's going to be a rough road ahead for investors in the economy. So we're at the tail end of the longest economic expansion in the history of the United States, even if you consider the very brief recession at the start of COVID. So because of all of this, in the last 10 years, it's been very easy for investors in all asset classes, including real estate investors of all skill and competency levels to make money. But timing does not equal talent. And the next 10 years are not going to be like the last 10 years. We anticipate a lot of investor and operator heartache over the next year or two. The silver lining is that we staunchly believe that for savvy, prepared investors, this will be a great time to invest. There's going to be a lot of opportunity. And we touched on a number of challenges back in November of 2022. Inflation was at the highest rate since the 1980s, and it was the quickest increase in inflation in modern history too. Interest rates, uh, the Fed funds rate climbed from 0% to 3.75 to 4%. Uh, and today it's actually at 5 to 5.25%. And this was the quickest increase in interest rates in modern history. And this impacted the multifamily investing landscape in a few key ways. Multifamily assets are priced uh, by the cash flow that they produce. And the assets in the marketplace weren't being repriced for their new rates. Sellers didn't want to change their prices. And buyers didn't want to pay prices that they thought weren't fair. So because of this, the market went into a deep freeze and very few deals were getting done. Uh, we also talked about another impact, which was that syndicators uh, and investors with variable rates on their projects, and the same common thread was true, because rates rose quicker than they ever have before, they weren't able to implement their value-add business plan of renovating the units to increase rents, and thus that was impacting cash flow and impacting investor distributions. And we called out the elephant in the room at the time, which was, you know, look, a recession is coming, guys, and we still think that's happening, and we're going to talk about that a little later. And then we moved on to talking about the RSN response to all of this. We focused on three key things. Number one, the fundamentals behind the real estate market that on a long-term horizon remain largely unchanged. We talked about the RSN investment thesis, how we built it to perform in good times and in bad. And then we talked about how our strategy at RSN has evolved and what investors should expect from us in the future to capitalize on the opportunities that will exist moving forward. The overall theme that we tried to get across is that amidst this market volatility, we see a lot of opportunity, which moves us forward in the presentation to where have we come from. So what happened in the last six months since we did this presentation? Well, interest rates are still rising, but at a much more predictable and a much more manageable pace. This has brought relative stability to the um, industry compared to six months ago, and it's helped to begin to defrost the multifamily market, and, and more to come on that in the future from uh, Reid. And the Fed's actions to cool inflation by hiking interest rates appear to be working. Inflation has indeed cooled. Now it peaked in June of last year, and that 4.9 print for April is, is actually today. So, you know, well done to the Fed. Congratulations. Job well done. Take a victory lap. Oh, whoops. They caused a banking crisis in the process. So, you know, I, I make that little joke, but I actually don't criticize the Fed. The US economy is incredibly complicated. You twist a knob in one direction, something breaks somewhere else. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunately just the way things are. And we have a banking crisis and we've had some bank collapses. 
So we've seen SVB, Signature Bank, First Republic and Silvergate um, collapse. You know, these are all regional banks. This, this is mainly impacting regional banks. And, you know, how interest rates played into this is that a lot of these banks were invested heavily in treasuries that dropped in value dramatically when these interest rates rose. And uh, it appeared on paper that their balance sheets, you know, had, had dropped in value, uh, which they had. You know, if they held the bonds to maturity, they would have got the same amount of money no matter what. But when they had to reprice these, these bonds, these treasuries, you know, their, their balance sheet took a big hit. And this caused a general fear in depositors thinking that, you know, their money wasn't safe. So they moved their money to safer banks. And this reduced the assets that the regional banks had on their balance sheet even further. So in response to this, a lot of the banks actually had to borrow money from the government to stay healthy, you know, causing their liabilities to go up. So it's a huge oversimplification, but because of all of this and more, these banks collapsed. And what many people don't realize is that regional banks are responsible for 80% of commercial real estate loans uh, in this country. So couple that with the fact that there's a lot of pressure on commercial real estate right now, particularly offices and retail, and these banks' commercial loans are now worth um, less again too. So this all plays into the challenges that we see in the market, and it's a good segue to Reid who's going to be covering the where are we now section of this presentation. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Great recap on what's happened over the past six months. You know, what I'm going to dive into now is what we at RSN are seeing as we chat to brokers, as we chat to you guys as investors, and you know, as we chat to industry insiders, and you know, as also as we go to major conferences like NMHC, which is earlier this year, and talking to people out there in, in the industry doing deals right now. Um, so all of what is Ben is describing is spilling over into the commercial real estate market, and is obviously spilling over into specifically multifamily as an asset class. And I'm sure a lot of you as investors are in, involved in other multifamily deals, and I'm sure some of you those deals are are experiencing some level of distress right now. And I'm I'm not going to talk about the distress in multifamily sector. I'll do that in just one second. But first, I want to talk probably more in general about where we are today and, and firstly cover like the ec economic pessimism that, that we're seeing. So we are seeing that there is widespread economic pessimism across the United States. And on this current slide, you can see that uh, some feedback that was quoted from CNBC All America Economic Survey, which stated, which started, sorry, I should say, uh, over 17 years ago. Um, and according to this survey, this recent data is actually the worst sentiment they've seen from surveyors in the in the in the history. And you know, we can see that seven out of ten Americans have a negative view on the U.S. economy. Two thirds say inflation is outpacing their wages. Uh, only twenty four percent of people are saying that now is a good time to invest in stocks. Uh, Fifty percent say that their own financial situation is worse than it was a year ago. So, overall. This sentiment is that individual investors are really taking a, a wait and see approach uh, for further investments of all kinds. And that includes stock market investing and real estate investing because you know, they think that there's more pain to be felt and, and thus they want to be defensive with their money in, in staying on the sidelines. According to another published survey by, by Alliance Life Insurance Company of North America, out of more than a, a thousand investors surveyed, 63% of them said that uh, they're keeping their money out of the market while another 62% of them said that they would prefer to you know, leave it in cash and leave it on the sideline. Now, the problem that we see with that is that this approach, even though treasuries you know, are paying and, you know, and CDs are paying some, somewhere between 4 and 5%, inflation is still at that same rate. So you're having effectively a net zero return on your money in those types of investments. The funny thing that we are seeing is that you know, there's an old saying in this industry that individual investors during these times 
you know, the sentiment is that, that, that the investment industry is the only industry in the world uh, where everything is on sale. You know, you know, nobody wants to buy it, but as soon as it all gets to its highest prices, no one can resist um, buying more of it. Um, so we, we are actually seeing a lot of investor sentiment staying on, on the retail side, uh, on the sidelines. Now, because of this, we are seeing on the opposite side of the coin, bigger institutional investors are uh, are not only you know, continuing to invest heavily in the industry today, but they're actually ramping up very, very quickly. And, and Blackstone just finished their raise on their latest addition to the sector's most recognizable uh, opportunistic uh, real estate fund, which is called the, the Blackstone Real Estate Partners Fund. And they plan you know, to opportunistically deploy this money um, from this fund into certain commercial real estate sectors that they believe that will continue to perform over the next few years. And that includes multifamily. Multifamily real estate housing is one of the things that they're going to continue to invest in. They're also going to invest in logistics. Um, they're also going to invest in lab and offices and data centers. Um, but they also will be deliberately shifting away their focus from some of those struggling at, uh, commercial real estate classes like you know, office and retail. Now, it is generally the larger institutional investors and high net worth individuals who invest in these funds. They're sort of sophisticated investors who we here at RSN refer to as the smart money. And, and the smart money you know, went big. They are throwing $30 billion at this fund, making it the largest real estate drawdown fund ever raised. And we do like to say here at RSN that we do like to follow that smart money. Um, and this is like one of the support, many supporting factors behind our view that we think multifamily will continue to be a great asset class to invest in the medium to long term. Now, with all of that being said, the reason this fund has been so successful in attracting investors is that there has absolutely been a lot of pressure in the commercial real estate market right now. That's the elephant in the room. We all know that. Um, this is particularly prevalent in office and in retail sectors. Obviously, COVID uh, had a massive and rapid uh, you know, change trends in terms of remote working. It reduced the need for expensive office spaces and, and businesses cut back on that. Uh, COVID also accelerated trends of how people shop online um, with obviously online sales, go, you know, seeing a massive uptick and, and malls and strip malls, you know, no one's going to them anymore. Now, as we touched on previously, um, you know, the banking sector and the commercial real estate are heavily, heavily intertwined, uh, particularly as Ben mentioned earlier, regional banks issue 80% of America's commercial real estate loans. And we see the banking crisis and the challenges in, you know, in the commercial real estate sector feeding off each other. Uh, the end result will obviously impact not only office and retail, but it's going to impact all commercial real estate asset classes. And we see it unfolding in a number of ways. Uh, first and foremost, we're going to, I think we're going to see it unfolding with tighter lending across you know, all commercial real estate asset classes, potentially even credit a credit crunch, so to speak. Um, haven't seen that played out yet, but we may see that coming. We will see refinances harder to obtain in, you know, obviously in a higher interest rate environment, particularly impacting deals that are relying on uh, refis to to get a return to investors. You might also see, you know, uh, rate caps, you know, continuing to be extremely expensive, and lenders are now starting to force some operators to siphon cash flow into escrow for, you know, future rate caps to buy them down uh, if they are expiring within the next six months. We're also seeing there's a potential that they, you know, to prop up their own liquidity. We may see some banks looking for excuses to call loans due early, and frankly, 
this is a big risk that not a, a lot of people are talking about, and we think could be could be a very much big potential with the with the continued banking crisis. Now, now keep in mind that often banks will bundle office um, or commercial real estate loans together, but in particular, they do bundle office and, and multifamily loans together. So, you know, if if a bank needs to call a loan due, you know, to to prop up their own liquidity, they'll prefer to liquidate one of those that doesn't cause them to take a huge loss on their balance sheet, and that probably will be a multifamily loan. Now, the response we are seeing to these challenges within this traditional lending space is that we're seeing some non-bank lenders starting to pop up and fill that void left by reduced bank financing. Private money lending, pref equity is starting to really, really come back in a strong way. And it comes, you know, obviously with higher interest rates, but it, you know, it's higher than bank loans, but it still means that people can get loans, you know, deals done to, in today's market, even in, in a very rapidly increasing interest rate environment. Now, Outside of the banking crisis, um, there's some other massive factors that are going on right now in commercial real estate. Um, obviously, you know, the interest rates themselves, right, increasing over 500 basis points in, in a 15-month period. And, and you know, we, we're going to not be apologised for beating a dead horse here, but we all know that commercial real estate values and cash flows are highly sensitive to these rates. You know, with with debt service costs going up so dramatically, some deals and some operators are starting to struggle to keep up with these payments. And they're at risk of defaulting on these loans, or, or have the lender preemptively call these loans due, even if they're not in, a, you know, in a technical default. Um, we're seeing big groups like Brookfield defaulting on their office portfolio here in, in actually in downtown Los Angeles, which is sending, you know, big ripples through other parts of the commercial real estate industry. Um, rates are hitting multifamily operators too. You might have seen the, in the news that 3,200 unit portfolio in, in Houston, um, it just had its loan called due. Now, now this particular operator wasn't a massive operator. I think you're a relatively new operator. Um, I, I do know that um, I think he was part of a, a coaching group that you know this coach was parading him around on stage for all of his success. Um, and I don't know all the details of the, how the property is performing, but what I do know is, you know, the lender involved in this particular deal is notorious for being a loan-to-own lender, and we at RSN actually avoid this lender at all costs, uh, given their reputation, but uh, to be unnamed. But, you know, whatever the situation on this particular case, we feel comfortable stating that across the industry, inexperienced operators will be found wanting over the next 12 to 18 months. And we're also quickly seeing, as I mentioned earlier, with you know places like Brookfield, uh, you know, big, big inst- bigger, bigger shops, that, that it's not just going to be these newbie operators. They're going to be some well-known operators who are going to start having struggling deals too. And we're hearing that murmurs in, uh, you know, as we're chatting to different brokers in, in different um, you know, events that we're, we're, we're attending. And a lot of these projects, you know, have floating rate debt on them, and they've they've they haven't defaulted on this debt yet, but they are starting to see signs of of trouble. And the reason of this struggle is that the cost of this debt has increased, you know, faster than the implementation that you know of anyone's business plan. And this this is not just you know uh, to one particular asset class or one particular market. It's you know it's it's across the country. And if you combine this with cooling rents across the US and, and you know, say expiring rate caps, um, forcing operators to escrow money for future rate caps. It's resulted in operators having to do capital calls because in order to buy that new rate cap or you know be forced to do a cash-in refi, you know, when these you know with these non-traditional uh, bank lenders, as we mentioned earlier, um, we're also seeing some sellers with expiring debt, uh, you know, just willing to exit their investment as they don't want to refi in today's higher interest rate environment. Now, separately to these interest rates, you know, where you know, deals are also struggling due to increased insurance costs. We're seeing, um, you know, the recent environmental events over the past few years, 
really starting to impact renewal rates across the country. We're seeing rates in Texas and Florida jump as much as 40 to 60% on premiums. Historically, on, on a multifamily asset, you could probably have underwritten to a $400 to $500 per unit per year for insurance back before COVID. Today, you need to be underwriting to at least $800 to maybe $1,200 uh, per unit in Texas and probably even more uh, in a state like Florida. Now, some of our deals in some of our markets, like Phoenix and the Carolinas, we're still seeing low sub $500 per unit per year on premiums. But we do know that these effects from you know Texas and Florida will start permeating around the country. And sure enough, it will probably start impacting our markets too. Now, I'd like to speak to the deal flow um, and, and, and transition to you know, what we're actually seeing in the markets in terms of real-time real data. But in terms of what we're seeing in today's markets and real-time data, um, we, we are seeing purchase cap rates that have expanded as much as 150 basis points across some of our target markets. Now, market cap rates for you know is a measure of what people are willing to pay for certain assets. And, and you know, are linked, the, these you know, market cap rates are linked directly to the Fed rate, right? So, um, example of this is, you know, a year ago, you know, in, in a market like say Phoenix, you could be buying value-add 1970s, 1980s assets for, for probably, you know, low four caps. Today, we are picking up assets in the mid five cap uh, range. You know, we just picked up an asset in Tempe at a five point four cap. Um, you know, with so which is you know remarkable uh, expansion of cap rates and and other markets like Central Texas, uh, we have seen that particular area seem to hold off in terms of price adjustments. They they for some reason they're still hanging on to the mid to upper four caps on their purchase price adjusted for taxes. Um, however, we are starting to see that adjust in real time, and there's actually a case in point. Uh, I was on a I was on a deal in um, what's called Stone Archer Canyon in San Antonio. And that particular deal, um, we had a whisper from the broker saying about 38 to $39 million. I was underwriting it to my you know, underwriting standards and we we're coming in at $35 million, um, because we just needed a, you know, a true five cap on year one adjusted for taxes. I called the broker. I said, hey, mate, you know, we don't, we're nowhere near that 38 to $39 million. I'm just not going to submit. Lo and behold, he said, no, I think you, if you submit at $35 million, you're going to be competitive. Well, I actually got into best and final. I, I ended up losing out to another group who was willing to pay $36 million. But we're slowly starting to see even Central Texas start to adjust into the low to mid five caps. Now, with this expansion in cap rates and multi multifamily sales are down 74% year on year. And this is the lowest since 2008 or 2009. And this slowdown in activity is really, you know, what we believe is linked to the fact that valuations of multifamily assets have just, frankly, dropped in the last twelve months. And some sellers have adjusted their prices because they're still in the money and they can just still get out and make a make a profit and make their people, you know, make their investors money back. But some, you know, are stubbornly refusing to to sell, and and many more are just simply not even listing their properties um, while they wait for the interest rates to drop and hopefully values to pick back up again. The most viable deals we are actually seeing on the market today is a combination of sellers with that expiring debt um, or sellers with great in-place debt terms, you know, say sub 4% interest rate with still five or six years left on their loan, looking to sell it at a sub five cap um, going in uh, because they have such good, good in-place debt. So we're seeing a combination of the two. Now, the positive side of all this is that the deep freeze in the multifamily market, which we have experienced for the past 12 months, is starting to thaw. And we believe it will continue to thaw 
if the Fed truly is going to start pausing interest rates. Um, we are starting to see a few more deals hit the market um, as, as the start of Q2 when we you know, compare it to the start of Q1. Uh, we're still way off what we believe the volume should be if you compare it to years gone by, but it is a promising sign that you know we'll hopefully start to be able to offer on a higher number of attractive looking multifamily investment opportunities later this year. Now, we have continued to underwrite properties. We've continued to tour deals. We continue to turn over rocks because we want to keep a pulse on the market in real time. And just like that Stone Archer Canyon deal, well, I was able to determine what cap rates are starting to adjust to in real time. You may not have actually seen that deal hit the market in terms of what it sold for until it actually goes through a transaction. Well, because I was invested in final, we could see that. And we're doing that across many, many different markets. And that's the most important thing is that we have to continue to use the exact same underwriting standards as we always have, stick to our guns. Um, now, this might mean that we are probably going to do fewer deals this year than that we would like to, but we are positively optimistic that the second half of 2023 will have more deals to hit the market and hopefully more of those gems um, to, 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 to find out. So in addition to the market thawing, the, the silver lining here is that with all these Andrews wins is, is that the interest rates have probably peaked and are projected to steadily probably drop over the next few years. Firstly, I'll say that as of last week, we all know that the Fed increased rates by 25 basis points. And they did indicate, Mr. J Money Powell did indicate that um, you know, this could be the last before uh, last rise before potentially pausing or even cutting. Now, inflation is persisting to be above 2% target and jobs data is unexpectedly strong as of April. But in the face of this banking crisis, it seems unlikely that we're going to keep raising rates for the foreseeable, for the foreseeable future. And as you can see here, it's supported by this dot plot. And each of these dots uh, on this plot represents the opinion um, of one of the seven members of the board of governors of the, the Federal Reserve System and the presidents of, of 12 reserve banks. So you can see the highest ranking Fed officials themselves see rates trending down to 2.5% over the next couple of years. Now, if that last rate hike last week is in fact the final one before a pause, we will, you know, history will show that it takes on average about 8.5 months before the Fed will start cutting rates, which will put us, if you do the math, in early 2024. Now, we've been talking a lot about the looming recession on our last webinar, and we still stand by this call. We, you know, we are going to see it hit in 2023, depending on the data sources that that you you, you subscribe to. Some data is around 80%. We are actually preparing for it as, a, as if it's 100%. And you'll notice from this chart that uh, as soon as we hit a recession, the Fed is usually forced to cut rates. So the timing of this recession will impact when we see rates cut and how deeply and how quickly uh, they will cut. So with that being said, uh, let that all sink in for a little bit, because I do want to transition and let's talk about what some of the opportunity that's coming uh, down the road. Um, and, you know, we think that, you know, opportunity for strong firms like, you know, strong investors and strong firms like us, you know, we will be there ready to, you know, ready to pounce. We have covered uh, a lot of doom and gloom uh, head on here. And we've, we've, you know, we've, we've, you know, called a spade a spade. And some of, my, some of you might be actually feeling a little scared and rightly so. However, however, that's why you join these webinars. You don't want to, you know, stick your head in the sand. You want to keep up to date on the market and hopefully be able to see past the fear to the opportunity. That said, we realize that we've given um, a lot for you to process here. And all things considered, 
Um, it's it's you know it's a complicated and rocky road ahead for the economy. Um, also, the real estate market and you know multifamily specifically, we will see some operators you know won't be able to navigate this road successfully. Um, and you know we're going to see an uptick in deals collapsing and potentially even operators collapsing themselves. Um, here at RSN, we're, we're relatively a small and nimble operator. Our core business is financially strong. Uh, we, you know, we have a good track record that that lenders love, and we, you know, we we pride ourselves on having a well-established reputation in the industry for doing you know what we like to think is good business. Um, but all in all, very strong position to swoop in and acquire uh, these deals. You know what we think are going to be discounted prices um, coming up here in the next uh, six to twelve months. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you will automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now back into the show. With that being said, we want to talk about how we are positioning ourselves moving forward. And as I mentioned earlier, you know the fundamentals of multifamily real estate still exist today. And they, we said it on the last webinar. We'll say it again today. Affordable housing is what is needed. There is people need shelter here in the United States, and it's only been exacerbated by inflation, a high inflationary environment. We are seeing newer build products either being paused or, or put on the shelf because you can't build or it just doesn't pencil in a high, infl- uh, high interest rate environment, and thus putting more pressure on the supply and demand curve, right? So we still think that affordability, people who need shelter, people need who earn between forty dollars and $80,000 a year need somewhere to, um, to, to live. We're also, you know, uh, you know the, the, the affordability is encouraging people to rent. So people who can't, you know, were saving up for that first home, home time, first time home, uh, may not be able to go out now in in a seven, six or seven percent interest rate environment and buy that first time home. So they're having to to rent for longer, which is going to be good for the fundamentals of real estate um, overall. And we're still continuing to, you know, obviously buy in landlord-friendly states. We're still continuing to buy workforce housing, and I mentioned between the forty and eighty thousand dollars a year. Um, we still love in multifamily from how it tracks in inflation. You know, we, we, we're obviously signing twelve-month leases. We can, you know, renew leases every twelve months and keep in line with inflation if it continues to be a problem. You know, and we, you know, we think multifamily you know, gives us a good, strong position out of the gate for a, a medium to long-term investment. And that you know that that goes to our thesis and and, all, and how we're adjusting moving forward is that we are focused on equity growth. Uh, we're still focused on cash flow, but we're focused on better quality assets and better and better located areas. Uh, we're also looking to have larger cash buffers, so over raise some money uh, at the beginning to make sure we can ride out any downturn. We're looking to try and have flexible hold periods with our um, you know with, with our uh, particular investments. Uh, and we're also looking for tax advantage deals for those people who uh, are on this call that might be invested in our Greenville deal. We actually just got our tax abatement the other day. We got a zero, a big fat zero on our tax bill um, for the next twelve months. So we um, will by keeping some of our units affordable, and that's on existing deals. So you know, there's other ways out there to skin the cat, and we are we are looking for those opportunities in and around the value add space. We're also focusing on off-market deal sourcing. We've brought some of that in-house ourselves and we're starting to see some fruits 
uh, of our labor starting to come to fruition and, and it's starting to execute on and talk directly with distressed buyers. And in terms of how we're you know moving forward in, you know, we are still focusing on right now fixed rate debt. Uh, we, you know, we do mention that we think interest rates are coming down, but for right now, we do think that locking in debt for the short to medium term uh, with flexible options to refinance in two, three, four years is the best use for, you know, is the most positive for investors. We're also looking at reducing our leverage. So, you know, not, not getting leverage on the CapEx, raising CapEx dollars from equity. Um, I mentioned potential refis, making sure that we have that up our sleeve. If we're, you know, we executed on the last two deals in the last six months, it's all been agency uh, product with an option to do uh, execute a, a re um, a supplemental loan in in you know two to three years. We haven't underwritten to that, but we're continuing to keep those aces up our sleeve whilst also keeping our leverage low and whilst also locking in interest rates. Um, we're also looking at, at those assumable debts. And, and I mentioned earlier that the Stone Archer Canyon deal in San Antonio, that was an assumable debt at 4.3% interest rate. So we are keeping our finger on the pulse um, as we move forward into sort of uncharted territory. And I think that is the, the message that we want to, you know, there's going to be opportunities coming down the road. So um, with that being said, we're still holding firm on our underwriting standards. I mentioned the example before where brokers wanted to try and push us to, but where the numbers were staying and, and sticking to our numbers. And lo and behold, <laughs> look where we're investing in final. You know, we're also exploring new other investment opportunities. Um, some of you might have seen our latest investment opportunity, um, the, the, the St. Marcus deal. We're, we're doing a 66 build for rent unit community uh, in St. Marcus, just south of Austin, um, actually a bit of a plug for that deal. We're doing an investment webinar for that deal next week. Uh, I've actually had that that land under contract with a seller carryback finance for the last 12 months, um, enabling me to go out and figure out with the city exactly what we need to build. And, and by right, this, this asset or this site can actually have 120 units, but we're building um, 66 build for rent because that's what the city wants. And, and you know, there, there's, a, there's a really easy path uh, forward to permitting and construction. Uh, we're also looking at potentially doing a pref equity fund for investors or even a debt fund. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled for that if uh, coming down the line here with RSN. Um, so, what we but all of it is, you know, to really be highly opportunistic. We think that there's going to be great opportunities to buy great deals at, at good discounts right now. Um, with positive arbitrage going in, meaning that there's a, there's a cap, the cap rate is higher on the going in versus what you can get interest rates at. And we think that is only good for investors. Um, we're also enhancing our own capital raising abilities at RSN. We're actually hiring um, a head of sales um, to come in to, to nurture you know, relationships with people like you, our investors. Um, and we actually, one of the things we, we're going to ask after this webinar is, we would love to get real-time feedback from you guys um, about what you guys are doing. So we're going to send out an, a, a survey after this webinar, we'd love to hear if you, you know, one, investing, if you are investing, where are you investing it? Because that helps us keep uh, our finger on the pulse where we, you know, we when we go out and hunt for deals, we want to be sure that we can tie up deals and have the equity there ready to deploy. Um, obviously, you guys as investors, you know, who support us, um, we, you know, we can only do so much if, you know, if you guys are uh, willing and ready to, to invest in today's market. And some of you may not be, and that's okay, but we'd love to get that feedback. So keep your eyes peeled for an investor feedback coming um, up here, you know, very, very soon after this, after this webinar. Uh, with that being said, Ben, in conclusion, do you want to, do you want to wrap her up here? Yeah, look, so Reed's going to actually take some time to gather the questions up and uh, figure out how we're going to tackle those. And, uh, you know, look, 
like you've seen from this webinar, we're not shying away from, you know, sharing the bad news, sharing the good news and, and taking this stuff head on. Uh, what I would say is, you know, it can be a little scary. Um, you know, we're actually from the point of view of, uh, you know, making a good return and doing good deals, really excited. We genuinely think there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, a lot of people made their fortunes in the last downturn and, you know, economic volatility, volatility in the market, you know, we're, we're poised to capitalize on that. So, you know, we're, we're actually really excited from that point of view. And I'll pause there, Reid. How are you going with those questions? You got a couple that we want to tackle? So firstly, in film, I, uh, yeah, the, the, there will be a recording of this being sent out. So for people who had to jump off, a recording will go out. So, yeah, so we've got a couple of questions here. Um, ben, we can start with, let's have a look here. Debt ceiling. Any any comments on the debt ceiling uh, right now? Uh, yeah, well, we've been talking about that one. So, okay. Look, I mean, the, the debt ceiling is, um, as far as I'm concerned personally, it's, it's largely political theatre insofar as I think in the last 50 or 60 years, the debt ceiling has been raised 70 times. Every time this negotiation comes up, it gets blasted in the news and the outcome is always that the debt ceiling gets raised. So, you know, I, I track it a little bit, but I don't see it as a serious threat. Um, there have been scenarios where the debt ceiling hasn't been raised uh, for a period of time and, you know, government contract workers and, and other people, you know, don't get paid or don't work. Um, but in the reality, you know, politicians, whatever your political leanings, they're not going to let America completely collapse over the debt ceiling issue. So it's something to be aware of, but it's not something that genuinely impacts, um, you know, at least our investments and what we're doing in any meaningful way, as far as I'm concerned. Yep. Um, got a, I got a question here about job growth and declining labor participation for an upcoming recession, um, you know, how this will impact you know, tenants' ability to pay rent and handle any rental increases. A lot in there. Um, let's start by talking a little bit about, you know, just in general, the, the rate in which we're adding jobs to the US economy. Uh, I think if you look take a bigger, you know, we, we are continuing to add quote unquote jobs. Uh, I think, was it February or March's numbers were revised down collectively by 170,000 jobs, uh, not per month, but collectively across the two months. If you look at the Q1 for 2023 versus 2022 and 2021, Albeit 2021 was coming out of COVID, um, I think you know back in 2021 there was you know 600,000 jobs added per month in in Q1. I think it was you know don't quote me on this you know 400 or 500,000 in Q2 of 2022. We're down to on average I think 210,000 per month in the first quarter. So we are seeing jobs added slowly um, over the last since you know the COVID um, you know pandemic. And we, we we think that's going to continue, right? The, the obviously, uh, Jay Powell was saying that you know he said from the beginning that it would take twelve to eighteen months for these high interest rates to work its way through the system, uh, and I think we're we're seeing that hap that data happening in real time. Um, for whatever you think about the job, the recent jobs data, um, it is it is slowing down, um, which is you know uh, I'm not an economist, but you know we're also seeing. Uh, Less labor participation rate uh, compared to compared to pre-COVID, um, but all in all, you know, to back to the question of like how it's going to impact, you know, our renters. Well, our renters are blue-collar renters, right? They, you know, I'll be lying by saying, but those folks don't will get impacted first. Um, so, you know, we are still continuing to, you know, file for evictions. We're still continuing to work with uh, our our tenants on um, making sure they're paying, uh, you know, breeding uh, uh, sort of. An on-site, um, you know, uh, 
you know, making sure they're paying on time and, and, it, and it's expected of them, right? And, you know, people who don't want to pay on time, you know, we're, we're evicting and we're still, you know, that's why we're investing still in landlord-friendly states um, because we still want to have that power to be able to to, to get tenants out if they're, if they're not if they're not being able to, to pay on time. We understand that sometimes it's not always their fault, but we, you know, we're also running a business as well. Um, so, you know, having tight tenant screenings, rent collections, making sure we're, you know, following on evictions and, and getting people, um, you know, people who want to pay rent in, you know, in 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 our in our properties. Um, so hopefully that answers uh that one. You know, another one here, Ben, is why is RSN poised to to pounce on opportunities compared to other operators? Wouldn't all operators have the same opportunities? Yeah, okay. Um, I can take this a few different ways, but um, I guess let's talk about RSN first. So, uh, you know, we're a, we're a small boutique operation. We're deliberately remote. I'm in Brooklyn, uh, Reed's in New York. Uh, we've got people on the ground in our key markets, but we don't have a huge overhead. We don't have like a huge office space. Um, we don't have huge insurance costs. Um, we use a lot of technology behind the scenes. You know, I've spent 20 or 30 years in the technology industry. So a huge amount of what we do is automated. So we don't have to use human resources to do that. Long story short, our costs are remarkably low for a, you know, a business that does the volume of what we do. And that's just not the same for our competitors. They've got um, you know, a lot more staff. A lot of them have offices. Um, you know, so long story short, a lot of these other companies have been forced to do deals during this downturn that maybe aren't at the right prices. So they have to overpay to bring in fees to be able to keep the doors running, things like that. So that's that's one of the big reasons I'd say that um, you know, we're different. And more than that, we're we're small and nimble. So we don't have um uh you know what would you call it like equity partners. We don't have a parent company. You know, if we need to make decisions, we can make decisions quickly, we can move quickly, we can get stuff done. You know, we've got a good reputation in the marketplace. You know, there's just a lot of reasons, I think, why us, rather than bigger, slower uh, companies, have the opportunity to pounce on these deals. So, you know, I could go on about that for a long time. So if anyone has follow-up questions about that, please jump in. But I'll, I'll pause there before I take up the rest of this meeting. Yep. Uh, moving now to the chat, we've got a lot of lot of uh, awesome comments here in the chat. Thank you so much for everyone participating, particularly Alex, uh, our exemplar capitalist. Um, one of the questions in and around uh, the difference between cap rates and interest rates. Okay, so um, value-add multifamily or value-add commercial real estate, uh, you know, you're adding value, right? So you're going in cap rate probably historically on most deals have been less than your uh, interest rate, right? So let's just take an example. Interest rate might be five, but you're buying in, you're buying deals at four four percent cap rate because you believe that you're going to spend twenty thousand dollars a door. And you'll be able to get that cash flow up, and you'll come, you know, you pop your head up, you know, and and uh, you know, out of the water, and and you know, be cash flow positive, and and be able to distribute money. What has happened in recent times with how quickly interest rates have gone up, those four cap market deals, you know, that the interest rates might be now six and a half, seven percent. Rule of thumb, I have seen over the last eight or nine years doing this. If you're within 50 to 75 basis points, sort of, you know, historically, I'm talking about pre the raise in interest rates, where, you know, markets have been a bit more, uh, less volatile. If you've been, you know, going in with a negative arbitrage of your, your cap rate being less than your interest rate, you can probably handle 50 to 75 basis points spread, right? You know, if you truly believe that you can increase rents three, 400 bucks in a month and, you know, you, you're believing in that. Today, I think what we are finding is that we are we, the last two deals we have purchased, 
uh, one we just closed on the end of March, we bought the interest rate down to about a 5% interest rate, but we bought the deal at a five and nearly a five and a half cap. So we're going in with positive arbitrage. There's still a value add component there, but we're instead of being negative cash flow from day one, we're positive cash flow from day one. And we're seeing more of that happen in real time. Uh, the question around, you know, I think Alex was answering about, you know, having cash reserves on hand. Well, if you look back at historical deals, a lot of operators would 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 overraise and you know with that negative arbitrage and and be uh you know supplement year one cash flows until they got the deal you know they added that value and got it to where you know coming up for air and and positive cash flow in but when interest rates now have increased so much it's it's extremely hard to do that you're you, you can't implement your business plan plan quick enough to keep in line your noi growth in line with how much um interest rates have expanded but on the converse side, I now have seen deals start to transact, i.e. we just bought a deal, value-add deal, um, and it's been positive positive arbitrage. I haven't seen positive arbitrage deals on value-adds probably since 2015, 2016, but we are starting to see that come back around. And we are focusing on that. So back to the question on, on underwriting standards, we want to see, not only will we want to see um, cap rates in in and around the you know, mid mid fives. We also want to try and get interest rates either buy the interest rate down um, or get interest rates at par or, or or positive arbitrage, so we have cash flow from day one. And we think that's extremely safe position to be in, particularly when also you have low leverage debt, you know, around sixty to sixty five percent, and then you're doing other things like raising equity for your capex, raising capex money from equity. Right, that means that you've got a massive reserve sitting on. And if things get more rocky or your business plan doesn't go to plan, you can pause on that. You're not, you know, you don't, you're not beholden to the bank to deploy that capital and and have to do those, those, um, those renovations if you're not getting the rent pops. So I've said a lot of things there. I hope hopefully that answers that question about how we're looking in and around um uh you know looking for uh deals today, positive arbitrage, and then and around you know trying to keep a you know good cash reserves on hand. Serge has asked here, can you talk about RSN's underwriting in terms of cash reserves in each of your deals and the circumstances you would increase the probability of suspending distributions or worse capital calls in the next two to three years? So every deal is different, right? Uh, capital, cash reserves, some you know, percent, and I think Alex has done a good job of answering it here uh, as a percentage of, you know, potentially of your um, of your, your, your payments, maybe it's six months worth of interest payments, you know, $500,000, $600,000, it might be more. It depends on the deal, right? So that's a it's a very open ended question. Typically, I'm looking for probably around if you know if you're doing say, I don't know, uh, a thirty million dollar deal, you're probably looking at two, three to five percent of of cash reserves just for as a cash fund buffer. You may also have on top of that, you know, capex dollars that you're, you know, for example, you may say, okay, the, you may have a lender that says I want to fund all your capex. Well, historically, we have not done that. We've said, no, thanks a lot for that. We'll just take 75% of the CapEx. We've still, and this is you know going back pre-interest rates, but we've still had some cash to get our own capital reserve, uh, CapEx dollars or you know, work started. Um, and that's been, you know again, added to the kitty of, of reserves. Today, we are not doing any leverage on the CapEx and doing and raising it all from equity. It does reduce your overall IRR. Um, but it means again we're in control of that. So really depends on the situation as it relates to um, your distribution question. Again, it's all it's all deal dependent. You obviously want to be distributing distributable cash from your deal. Your deal should be cash flowing 
If it's not, you probably should be stopping pausing distributions. And sometimes a pause in distributions isn't mean that the deal's going bad. It's just that it's it's they're trying to preserve cash and it's the best thing for the deal. Now, in terms of the other question that you talk about cash in refis, I think that was the other question. It just it, it depends on where other factors are coming in. So there's other factors might be how's your expiring rate cap? Is, is your lender requiring you to escrow more money for a future rate cap? Do you have to refi in the next six months? All these things are going to um, force you down a conversation with, well, how much money do I have on hand? And how much you know, do I need to go get if I need to want to hold hold the deal and not lose investors' money? So, Serge, I don't know if that's answered your question, but there's you know, a lot of, you can spend probably an hour talking about the different uh, ins and outs of that specific question and different circumstances, but it is really dependent on deal by deal. Rate cap expiration, how much cash you got on hand, when you got to refi, you know how much you know um, time do you have, and you know the old saying we're hearing a lot in different conferences is survive to twenty five. So yeah, hopefully that answers that question. Um, continuing on, uh, thank you, Christina, for your support. We love you, and um, hopefully we get to that the Pasadena Phoebe sometime soon. I got here from looks like Nick Hill. Um, what are your tax efficiencies in the investment structure depreciation? Well, like any physical asset, you know, we are investing in these assets because the difference between that and paper um, investing is um, because we get to use depreciation. Uh, so depreciation is the number one thing that we like to deploy, particularly accelerated depreciation. And we like to do cost segregation studies that flow through directly to investors. Um, so you can offset any distributions uh, that you receive from an investment in, you know, years one, two, and three, you can, you know, offset, um, you know, that income with uh with losses and thus hopefully you know our target always is the losses from depreciation and business loss is greater than what we distribute to you thus you don't have to pay taxes on those distributions now I'm, i'll have to say i'm not a cpa but that's the goal in which we like to um you know how we like to use depreciation and losses in our deals uh what's your funding profile average tenure fixed versus floating average rate so yep a lot of things there Funding profile, uh, you know, we are typically buying deals between 20 and $30 million. And that's because we are confident in raising, you know, equity from, you know, seven to $12 million equity checks. Uh, we've done bigger deals in the past, but given, you know, investor sentiment right now, I think that is, and hence why we want to get investor feedback from you guys. We are doing slightly smaller deals. Um, you know, last year we closed on two $35 million deals. You know, we just closed on a $20 million deal and it was one of the hardest raises we've done to date out of 23 syndications. So we're just focusing on what we can. We're biting off what we can chew. We're not trying to go off and do $40, $50 million deals because we just don't have the equity partners to go do that. Now, should our survey come back and say that all our investors are like, let's go, let's go, let's go? Well, maybe we'll change our tune. In terms of we average, we look to three to five-year holds uh, we, you know, historically we have done floating rate debt, you know, pre-COVID. Today we're only doing fixed rate. Um, you know, the average, I think the average rate is what the question here is, you know, we're trying to get as interest rates as low as possible. So there's a uh, good question from Christina that kind of dovetails into that. I can I can take first swing at it and then yeah, um, sure. I'm gonna channel actually my inner Austin Degu, who's who's on our team here, uh, when I answer this. Um, because it says, Can you guess if the Fed has really done raising rates in the eighties when they were trying to slow hyperinflation, they raised rates twice? It means to me as an investor, there's a chance that would occur again. What are your thoughts? Has there been enough damage to the economy? Um Again, channeling Austin, because I think he wrote an article about this, and I'm going to try to try to remember exactly how he worded it. But back in the 80s, the um, debt to GDP ratio of the US was dramatically lower 
And currently we're at over 100% debt to GDP. Uh, just the cost of servicing the debt that we have is astronomically higher than the 80s. The Fed doesn't have the same option to really keep increasing rates the way that they did in the 80s. Um, I mean, I'd have to think, correct me if I'm wrong, Reid, but what did they get up to? Is it 20%, 30%? 22% I, I, or something like that. 22%. Know, yeah, they did that. Vocal, right? Yeah, Volker. I mean, if, if they did that now, I mean, um, the, the amount of money spent on servicing the debt would completely bankrupt America. So, you know, the Fed is independent, but, uh, you know, they're not independent enough to crash America. So anyway, getting back to your, Christina, to your question, Christina, are they really done? We don't know. We think that they are. We think that they're probably going to be uh, lowering rates over the next few years. That's what the Fed says. That's what the dot plot says. At the same time, I think Reid mentioned, we're still getting fixed rate debt to wait and see what happens because, you know, it's a tail risk, but it could go up and there could be continued high rates. It could be a problem. And it's something that we want to hedge against. But no, if I had to be a betting man and it was an even money bet, I'd say that rates are going to drop. Yeah, I've actually heard some operators um, forego rate caps because <laughs> they think it can't get any worse. <laughs> so they're saying, screw it, I don't want to pay a million dollars on a rate cap and I'll just, you know, take, you know, take the risk. So uh, I'm not, we're not that type of group, but I have heard uh, in, in, in the circles that I run, I have heard, um, I have had some people doing that. So um, good on them. Uh, Craig Stevens, how are you, mate? Good to, good to get you back on here. Another, another great partner of ours here at RSN. Could you chat a little bit more about how you see preferred equity opportunities coming up? So, yeah, the preferred equity opportunities that we're seeing, and I'm actually involved in a deal with my former company that had this happen. Um, so say you've got um, a, a deal where you've gone in with, you know, and, and let's be honest, the bell of the ball for the last three or four years had been floating rate debt funds before we had COVID and, and before we had the run-up in interest rates, right? It was, you know, SOFA was relatively, it was at, at zero. I think you could buy a rate cap for 30,000 bucks. So, you know, people have gone out and got leverage, right? Two or three years later, they've come to get to their, do you want to go and apply for your extensions? Well, one of the deals that I was involved in, I'm not the direct operator, but they, um, the, they met the extension. I think they met the extension requirements, but they didn't, um, but the, but the loan, the lender had collateralized the loan with a bunch of other office. And so they were like, give us the money back. Like, and that was talking about earlier about, you know, liquidity crunches at the banks themselves or at the lenders themselves. Hence why, you know, we're constantly having conversations in real time with our lenders. Like guys, how are you going? <laughs> you know, anything we need to be worried about? Um, so we're, that's a bit, bit a side story, but but it's an example of well, then those guys had to go and pivot and say, well, what what can we go get in terms of current lending? Well, the agencies are still lending, but they're only lending at like fifty percent leverage. Well, that's not going to be enough to pay off the existing loan, and the existing lender wants their money back. Well, what are you going to go do? Okay, we got to fill the gap between you know, say it's fifty percent coming with Freddie and Fanny. You got another twenty percent to fill. Um, yeah, that was where you go and you'll put a pref equity in. Now, sometimes some operators will go and ask investors for that money or an opportunity to invest as that quote unquote pref. But nine times out of 10, you need to act quickly. Um, and thus there's pref lenders out there between, you know, double in the, in the low double digits. Um, and that's how they fill that the capital stack. Um, so Craig, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's that's called like nearly that's like a cash in refi or cash pref refi. Um, a cash in refi would be where 
okay, you could go get an agency loan, but you may need 10 or 15% from investors to chip in. You don't want to necessarily go and do that prep. So either option is you get the prep or you do a cash and refi with investors, and that's a capital call um, to pay off the existing debt and get a new debt term. And sometimes that might be better than losing the deal completely at a loss and you know, going raising another 10, 15% um, of your equity rather than losing the deal and, and losing all everyone's equity. So seen a few of the deal, deals out there like that. This particular deal I'm talking about is going to be just fine. It's in a fantastic area. The, the operator is doing a great job. Um, but that's how it would work um, to to, uh, to to for, for Pref Equity. With that being said, we are one minute before the top of the hour. We want to thank you all again for jumping on this webinar. We could talk for hours. I'm clearly can talk for a long period of time. Uh, again, huge thank you to everyone who's joined. We are going to send out that investment uh, survey. We'd love to hear where you guys are at in what you're doing. Anything, you know, just any feedback would would be great. If you're actively investing, where you're actively investing. If you're not, if you're sitting on the sideline, that's fine as well. And just a quick reminder, we will have that uh, new investment opportunity, the St. Marcus Build for Rent deal uh, up uh, next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. If you're interested in that, you can reach out to us and register. Once again, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Ben, any, any last parting words? No, that's it. Thanks for everyone, everyone for joining. If you have any follow-up questions, uh, shoot us an email. Want to jump on a call? We're happy to talk. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great rest of your evening. Talk to you soon, guys. Bye.